Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is Thursday night, and you know what that means. I mean, I've got another fantastic guest on tonight. I was getting feedback on something. I don't know what that was. That hurt my ears. Anyways, got a fantastic guest this evening. Um, you know, some people get excited about booking Spike Cohen. Some people get excited about Larry Sharp. But I've got a gentleman who is fantastic. He is, in many ways, arguably much better than both of them. And uh, mostly because I've been in the room with both of those gentlemen, and they would hate me saying that. But, you know, they, they know who I am. And they talk shit, and I talk shit, so it's fun. But arguably, my next my guest tonight is far more influential, and uh, if I could read, it would I could agree with all of that. But do that everything. So you can find us on all these platforms: Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Twitter, Anchor, and Spotify. Uh, go check out the LP Veterans Caucus, leading libertarian veteran issues, leading veterans to libertarian solutions. James Tollier, that is people over politics, people helping people. Go help the man out at tollier4ky.com. That's T-O-L-L-E-R, the number for ky.com. That's tollier4ky.com. Because James Tollier cares more about his community than he does about winning the election. He wants to win because he wants to help his community, but that's not what's important. It's about the people that he wants to serve. So go help the man out. Chris Byer for Alaska's congressman. There's one solitary House seat in Alaska. There's two senators, one House rep. Chris Byer would like that House seat because, you know, he's got to beat Santa Claus. Santa Claus uses L's, which is arguably child labor, which is bad. But, you know, it's also a socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist. So, you know, Chris Byer for Alaska um, go to itstimealaska.com. We've also got, let me take this one off before I go to the next one. I like NatalieBruno.com. If you missed Monday night's episode, she was on with Miss Christine, um, and they talked a lot smack about me, but hey, you know, I love them both. They're fantastic people. Uh, so go to like NatalieBruno.com because Oklahoma needs a fantastic governor, and that is Natalie Bruno. Go to podcast.com. That's where all of our merch is. You can see the bios about all of our hosts, about how the show started, how all of it just, that's where all the content gets uploaded, all the things. All of it is there. Uh, RedemptionTactical.com. Use that link right there on the screen. Miss, Miss Meme Moore has probably posted it somewhere, which she will. That is our special link. If you need a ballistic face mask because you're like, hey, the IRS has 87,000 new armed agents. I need a ballistic face mask. Go get you one. Uh, they're on there. Riot shields, all of it, all on there. If you want, to, if you want a face mask for your dog, because they're probably eighty-seven thousand times more likely to shoot your dog now. Go get you a face mask for your dog. Kern for Kern.com slash donate. It's time Alaska.com. Use the hashtag Chris for AK. Proud Libertarian is who does all of our merch. Fantastic people over there. Awesome people. I mean, they're just, the whole group is just wonderful. LPVest.com because they finally got a website. Uh, hashtag Anarchy Loop. If you don't know, you don't know. Sorry. NixTheWall.com. Oh, I meant to have his picture loaded up. He's finally got a massive billboard with his ugly mug on it. 
But it's a great billboard. It's in a great location. Unfortunately, it has Nick's face on it. But it's it's a good billboard. So, you know. Uh, all of these websites as well. Willforok.com because he's running for labor commissioner. Setorganfree.com. And that is it. That's all of the things. Enough of my blabbering. All of these comments here. All right, so we're going to get on to the guest tonight. Uh, he is a author. He's an activist. He's um, does just, I mean, I don't know what he doesn't do. He does so daggone much. But I'll let him tell you for himself, uh, Mr. Jack Lloyd. Hey, how's it going? What's up, man? <laughs> Quite the intro right there that I have to live up to now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do a lot. That's that's to say the least. <laughs> it feels like that's a lot of us. And like we all end up doing one thing, and then we're like, "Oh, we like that. Let's do some more." And then we next thing we know, we're like, "Oh my god, it's our entire calendar now." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I definitely started small and humble, just someone trying to learn about liberty, and just got more and more excited. Worked my way from just doing small student activism things with student groups sign waving and stuff like that and then started to do creative projects from comic books to nonfiction to music music videos events and whatnot so yeah you've uh, you've written uh, quite a few uh well you've written a few books um you wrote uh i can see the cover i can't think of the name right now the yep 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 the definitive guide to voluntarians uh, libertarian voluntarism well i'm worried for a guy i can't read <laughs> it's, a, it's a test you have to pass the cover in order to read it you have to first pronounce the, the cover the title in. i barely passed <laughs> it's gonna be a lot of, is there a lot of pictures in there no <laughs> all in the cover <laughs> but all right so um i guess we'll hit the the most recent stuff first and then kind of work our way just through it um you and the missus were at YALCON this year correct uh, which was what a couple weeks ago yeah we we're at the uh Yale revolution event 2022 at the gaylord palms in orlando that was august 4th through 6th and it was a fun time there's a lot of cool people there i especially like seeing the student activists uh because it's fun to see young people who are really passionate about liberty and and get to talk to them and inspire them be inspired by them by what they're doing so yeah it was a good time yeah, watching watching the newer generation who has seen a lot of the, the crap being spewed um, and being unraveled online, um, it is it is it does give hope to a lot of us who like myself are black pilled um, that maybe there is some hope for the future. But uh, yeah, I mean I've yeah I mean so um, you want you want to talk about some some key takeaways, some like highlights, some things you really enjoyed or sure, I mean. You know, I, I was spending a lot of the conference having fun and doing other stuff. I didn't go into really much of any of the speaking engagements, except the most important ones, you know, toward the end that, you know, I really want to be there for Rod Paul. Yeah, he's got a limited number of years left. Maybe we'll see how long he lasts. I mean, you never know. But I want to, you know, get as much Rod Paul time as I can before that, you know, uh, comes to a sad end. So seeing him and catching a little bit of some of the, uh, the end stuff, the awards, that was like the main thing that I, want to actually see a lot of the people who are speaking are you know great people and people i love like Corey DeAngelis is awesome uh great guy doing a lot of good stuff out there educating people about school choice and incrementalism and of course spike 
absolutely love him. He's a great friend. Um, but otherwise, I was kind of having a little bit of uh, re relaxation slash hanging out with people, mingling, doing some photos and stuff like that because I was there uh, as media. So we were out doing some pictures of people. So we we're doing some headshots and stuff outside of the conference and doing some interviews too. Like we were on Crypto Vigilante uh, getting interviewed for that uh you know outlet and stuff like that so yeah it was it was a, a a lot of fun just to be able to enjoy the venue and talk to people and be a little goofy i did address as one of my uh characters for one of my songs i just released a new song called florida boy and so he's tied to that it's you know a little uh bullet and i did a little bit for that so it was fun it's awesome i'll to i'll to listen to that uh florida man is is a is quite the legend in the united states um and uh so florida boy must be uh must be pretty impressive in himself so i mean i do have a florida man song as well and we're probably gonna be doing that music video next uh, um if not um you know the one right after if we do a small one in between but we're gonna be doing that project probably toward the end of this year in terms of fundraising and then probably shooting at the beginning of next year so that's gonna be a very big production for the florida man music video nice yeah yeah i just recently moved to florida with what about a month and a half ago but I'll say this, uh, coming from East Tennessee to Southern Florida is, is, uh, it's an experience. Um, people are wild here. Uh, it is, it's fun. It is fun. Yeah. Florida's great. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, who was, who was, uh, I'm trying to remember who we had on two weeks ago, but basically 90% of the economy around here involves something drinking. Uh, mm -hmm. They were talking about like some kind of giant balloon on the eastern coast of Florida that you can like you can buy tickets for for like a hundred grand and you just float into the atmosphere and drink. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I mean the Florida man all on his own makes sense when you look at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Florida is just it's a wild place. I mean, yeah, it's built on a swamp, but. People have made it great with uh, lots of fun attractions. It's you know it's a big tourist state, so there's always something interesting to do, and people are always coming here. So you don't usually have to travel around the world to see people because you know in Florida you'll be like, oh, there's a plate from Texas and New Hampshire and you know Oregon and Washington. You're going to see everybody coming here, so you know you, you get the eclectic mix passing through. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm the guy who is refusing to change my tags over. Like I will intentionally drive back to Tennessee to get my registration renewed, uh, for the simple fact that people will look at me different because <laughs> I have Tennessee tags. <laughs> I mean, you can, some people do that so to save on money. I know some people register in Wyoming and other places, you know, because it's cheaper to have your car registered in other states. Insurance, yeah, yeah, yeah insurance, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The one thing I think is that kind of bothered me is i have uh I'm, I'm the idiot who paid extra money to the state to have a nice tag but i have the uh the don't tread on me the yellow it, it looks exactly like this oh, but the, yeah i paid i paid the like three extra bucks for the tag but it looks cool <laughs> I mean, at least like three bucks i mean yeah, that's not too bad but no. yeah government co-opting all that stuff is always fun to see you know how the government's like ooh, we'll uh Get the slaves to, to <laughs> freedom by giving us more money. So yeah, uh, it is. I kind of want to want to run this into uh, a Dave Chappelle skit. You remember, and it's it's kind of I guess dicey water, but you remember the uh, the episode or the uh, the skit he did on reparations, and 
I think so. It's been a while since I've seen it, like many years. Um, who was in it? It, it? Mostly it's just him and then a bunch of just random people. Um, because they did like, like kind of like, like a joking overview of what it looked like, you know, Sprint Wireless. All of a sudden, you know, 30 million unpaid accounts are, have now been, you know, brought to current. And then one other thing, and that white anchor face that he does, and he says, we, we gave him this money, and they're giving it right back to us. That's kind of how that reminded me with the, the license plate tax. Like, the government gives you a refund, and then you just give it back to them by buying a bunch of stuff at refund time. So, yeah. Yeah. Shit joke. I know. Was, I <laughs> nah, no. It's funny. It's funny. I love Hilarious. <laughs> oh, Chappelle's amazing. So, all right. So, I guess we should uh, go back to what's really important. The books. I guess so. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> what's important? Educating kids outside the state's important. I uh, name the feds important. Pineapple and peas is important. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to put a pin in that one. We're going to, we'll circle back. Um, circle back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've become Jin Saki a lot on this show recently. We circle back to a lot of stuff, but, uh, so you had a hand in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you had a, uh, had a hand in the, uh, economics in one lesson. Economics. Nope. That's Henry, Henry Hazlitt wrote that like 60 years ago. Oh. Oh. Well, why, why are you bringing that up? <laughs> I'd have to have a time machine to do that one. That'd be pretty cool, though. See, this I mean, is how much I read. I don't. <laughs> You're going back in time, sir. Where? To Henry Hazlitt writing economics in one lesson. He needs to add a chapter on taxation being theft. <laughs> Ooh. I'd do it. I'd be like, all right, I'll go back. Let's do this. All right. So since I've already made myself look like a complete jackass. So let's say you've got a time machine. You get to go back one time period. What do you do? Where do you go? What do you do? Let's do it. I mean, mm, I've already ruined all of this, so. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one because my two options I think that would be most valuable would be at the beginning of maybe you could say, I mean, if, assuming I could somehow survive this, would be to you know be at the beginning of time itself. So it's like you kind of know what happened. Like, I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Actually, like, oh, what actually happened? Um, that'd be awesome to be able to see it. And if I couldn't do that, because obviously maybe I'd die if they're like, oh, you actually get to go into space and then you're dead. Um, maybe I'd choose something more practical, like just go back a week to know the winning lottery number you know, and pick that because obviously that that wouldn't at least mess up my current relationships. You have a lot of money. The garbage's going to take a lot of it. But, you know, you get you get some. <laughs> That'd be, you know, ideal. I mean, 50 percent of what 300 million is still still good money. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I would, lots of people would blow that. I wouldn't I would be very wise and, and be, you know, making sure to put that in a trust and hiding, you know, that I would not make that public. You would be totally safe. You wouldn't know, you know, if I won, nobody would know. It'd be, it'd be signed off to a trust. It'd be hidden. You would, you know, people would have no idea that I won it. So until they see me, you know, in the, in the jet and, the, and then the Batmobile. No, <laughs> no, no I'd be, I'd be doing more investment stuff and things like that to keep the, the wealth going. 
I wouldn't I wouldn't tell anybody, but there'd be signs like gold plated yeah. AKs just all over the house, just for no That's reason. True. My gun collection would uh, would dramatically increase i mean that's a given so <laughs> uh oh it looks like i uh i lost you I throw a button. <laughs> he's okay. he, he won I, the lottery he had to he had to step, step out real quick <laughs> the irs would be winning money and so they kicked my door in real quick Eddie. <laughs> that's yeah, that's, the IRS would definitely be, you know, using some of them new armed agents, you know, the guy in the wheelchair coming in, you know. Oh, they won the lottery. <laughs> we, we actually actually made a, a meme personally, like the other day about the new 87,000 whatever agents. Yeah. And it actually got so much traction that PolitiFact commented on the post and like fact checked it. And yeah. like, not all of them will be armed. I'm like, that's not better. That's not better at all. <laughs> it's also ridiculous because it's like these there's so many things that they do that are so fallacious. Like, for example, they'll say, oh, you know, this is supposed to be over 10 years that, you know, it's going to help with retirees. I'm like, OK, well, you're projecting and predicting which you don't have control over. You don't know what these people can do by that same token. Just because only a certain number now are armed. How does that mean in the future they're not going to be armed? How does that mean that? Oh, well, when they change you know, into a different department, they're not armed or that they, you know what I mean? It's like, if you could sit there and say, well, based on the future possibilities, you're wrong. Well, then how is you having so much certainty about the future possibilities about whether they're armed or not, or whether they, you know, roll into a, a job that they're actually armed in. It's, it's really crazy. I and mean, these people are, are freaking insane. They're just there to like, basically try to see how far they can take their lives and manipulation. So it's wild. <laughs> yeah, and I think one other thing that they mentioned was like it's over ten years. I'm like eighty seven hundred agents over ten years. It's still a lot of people. Right, that's, that's a lot. It's like okay, and aren't they gonna still be employed going past those ten years? Like you just hired them. Well, they're not getting fired the next year, so you're hiring eighty seven thousand more people. So unless you're telling me you're firing eighty seven thousand more people, <laughs> you're gonna have a lot of people. <laughs> it's like yeah, they're like. <laughs> These are agents that are retiring or whatever. I'm like, no. Nah. It's like nah, that's... 87,000 people retire next year? Okay. <laughs> yeah, over 10 years now. Nah. Yeah, nah. no. Okay. Good luck with so that. Full of it. Yeah. And they're never going to hire any more people either, right? There's That's just it. They're stopping hiring. There's no hiring ever again. You know, <laughs> These people are, are literally psychopathic. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Let's uh, let's talk about your first nonfiction book that you wrote. Bingo. So it's the uh, yeah the def uh, the definitive guide to libertarian voluntarism. Yes, I had to uh, right again. Apparently, apparently, we found a copy of it. That's what good. They just appear randomly. It's it's kind of like you know magic. They just show it's, up. It's like it's like Beetlejuice. You say it enough times, they just uh, <laughs> yeah. It's not in a striped suit yet. However. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so, um, so this is the first piece of nonfiction you wrote, correct? Mm, yeah, that's my first published nonfiction book because I published, you know, tons of fiction in the comic book realm. But I was like, all right, it's time, nonfiction time. So, what kind of motivated you to go from like the fun comic book, you know, n fictional stuff? Because I've had you know Jack Casey on here, which you know, in his deranged mind of flat Earth. I can see where it's easy just to make up stories, but what kind of, what kind of motivated you to go from like, you know, 
I can make this stuff up into let's talk about some serious stuff that you know not a lot of people may want to listen to because politics is not it's not a widespread thing where people are like I want to sit down and read about politics or like philosophy or something like that. What was the driving force behind that? Uh, just seeing that I was dissatisfied with the general literature out there in terms of having a succinct kind of you know nuts and bolts guide where you actually get the terms defined and then logically defended in a succinct way you know that you can give to pretty much anybody and they can read it in a short time and be like oh okay I, I understand what libertarian voluntarism that those concepts are about so that was you know the big thing for me is that I didn't see anybody else out there and I have quite a a few books. I have, you know, a lot of different authors across the spectrum from, you know, high level stuff, Mises Rothbard, um, you know, to like beyond a government haunted world and other, you know, books that people don't even really know too much about that exist that try to do these things, you know, to try to, you know, define the terms, and explain the philosophy. But I just didn't really see anybody do it in the way that I wanted to do it and have it just so neat and, and concisely put together uh, with uh, explanations. So I was like, no, nah, it's time to do this. And I didn't just um, do something where I'm like, oh, let me copy and paste what other people wrote or what they said. I'm like, no, 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 this is this is all original material. It's it's me articulating from my own research, my understandings, um, in my distillation of the philosophy and the history, and you know, tons of debates, of course, people online you know, over the years, and debating many you know, scholars as well. And stuff like that. So I, you know, I wanted to just have kind of that total package thing that someone can just read it and take away be like, ah, okay, I get this now. And they could start to apply it. And then of course there is citation to further research and work and other people. So if someone wants to go deeper, they absolutely can. They can figure out how roads can be done in the private market with Walter Block's book, you know, on a much more thicker academic treatise level if they wish. Uh, but they don't have to to have something, you know, that's accessible accessible and something that they can actually just read in the afternoon and, and kind of get it. Yeah, that's kind of one thing I've noticed is like just kind of flipping through this real quick. It's cover to cover. It's less than 100 pages. That's, I think, including the covers. I mean, it's it's not it's not like a, a thick, you know, 17, you know, volume book, you know, like the Britannica, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. And, you know, like most libertarians would talk about, like, you know, chapter 37. This is why taxation is extortion. Part 87. And so it is, it is a, what's really interesting, I think a lot more libertarians need to find a way to do this, especially is to simplify the message and make it more condensed. Because most people, look, let's be honest, this is the internet age. You lose people within 30 seconds. If you can't get the message call, uh, across quickly, they're, they're done. Right. So something, uh, something, this, like something this small where it, people would actually be willing to read it, that's... and. I mean, I only ever heard good things about this book. This is like one of the, like when I first joined the party, people were like buy this book. I was like, I don't read. They're like buy the book. I'm like oh my god, like everyone I met said that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've been really happy and um, you know thankful and encouraged that so many people have found it, uh, you know, inspiring, intriguing, and refreshing. Uh, you know, for me, that was that was my goal: is to have something that is very accessible that anybody can, you know, pass to whoever, and they can read it and, and try to, you know, wrap their mind around it in a short time. And it's not daunting, as you said. Like nobody gets scared holding this book up. Nobody's like, "Oh my gosh, this is too crazy." Like people are like, "Oh, okay, that's not too bad. I can, you know, read that on the plane or you know, on a trip or whatever." Like people are are not, you know, 
intimidated by it. So that was, you know, a big goal of mine was having something that was that, that level of, of co comprehension that people could actually read it. It's not like I just use simple words only, like I, I don't dumb things down. It, you know, it's there's still stuff in there that might make someone go grab a dictionary once in a while, but it's not uh, something that is is so dense and so packed with so many different assertions that you're like constantly going like, okay, then what happened? And like, wait, what about this? I don't even, you know, know this history. So I think that's pretty typical to a lot of uh, Mises and, and Rothbard's work. And I've read, you know, quite a bit of theirs and they, they often talk about a lot of tangential topics. They'll make a lot of assertions about different um, histories or other cultural things. And again, it's, it's how well the, read they were and it's a sign of, of their intelligence and their, um, I guess you could say engagement in the culture. But to me, some of that stuff is just not necessary if you're just trying to focus on the core principles and to get someone to understand it. And that's what I was trying to, you know, take out is, is the fluff stuff and just home in on that, which is most important to understand about what it means to have self-ownership, respective consent, thinking about the nature of the state and what's really going on with how those people act. And to think about just some of those uh, edge issues that a lot of people immediately start to debate about whenever they talk about this, like who will build the roads and warlords and stuff like that. So just covering, you know, briefly some of those issues. Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of people have said that the book focuses, um, in a lot of opinions, primarily on uh, property rights, which, you know, in my opinion, makes sense, and then the ethics around consent. Um, is there is there something, like, personal for, you know, why those two topics, a lot of people really, uh, you know, feel like the book has a, has a strong pull towards, or is it just, you know, that's how people feel. I mean, what's, uh, you know, what's the deal with that? Yeah. I mean, for me, why that's so unique and critical is the idea of self-ownership that is that first property, right? The idea that you as an individual own your body yourself. And that's something that's very empathetically relatable because everyone naturally acts as if they should have the highest right to their body, right? If someone tries to hurt them, they try to stop them. If someone you know tries to grab food out of your hand, just trying to nourish yourself, they're like, "What the heck? Why are you you know getting my sandwich?" People understand this idea that you know your your body should be respected by others and it shouldn't be touched or stabbed or jabbed or whatever without your consent. And to me, it's something that gets lost um, very often when you have governments come in and try to say, "Well." Your consent can magically just happen if we say so, and we get to, you know, declare you as as our serfs, and we get to own you for life just because you're born in this region. And people start to be like, "Well, that's okay, I guess," because you know they're really cool and they have shiny badges and stuff. So I, I I try to help people work from the ground up to think about what it is they actually naturally think about themselves and how they want to be respected and how they wish to be treated and and their relationships and to use that kind of empathetic reciprocity to build up what it becomes property rights outside the body in thinking about how you want to trade with others and how you want your home respected and other stuff like that. So all I'm doing is, is kind of laying down in concrete terms, what people already naturally kind of expect for themselves, but reminding them, Hey, th this is something that you already want. You already kind of act this way. So why aren't you just saying, Hey, you know, why are we having this consistently held across the board? And why would we give special, you know, privileges to these other people who can violate us magically when we think that's not ethical for anybody to do. Even if, you know, 10 or 10,000 of your neighbors signed a paper, uh, that wouldn't give them the right to be like, hey, we get to cut off your arm today because we, we signed a paper today. You know, it, yeah. it's ridiculous. So it's just having people be like, oh, okay, having consistent ethics is something that is both tenable and makes sense if you actually want your body and your property to be respected. Yeah, I mean, uh... 
you know, capitalism doesn't, in my opinion, so I'll, I'll just pivot in this a little bit. Capitalism doesn't exist without property rights. It's, in, in many ways, it's, it has to be one of the key pillars of it because otherwise, why does it matter? Why do you go to work? Why do you want to have a house or a car or anything if at the end of the day, you don't own any of those things? When property taxes exist, do you truly own anything? When there's when there's vehicle taxes, wheel taxes, fuel taxes, do you truly own anything when, when you're still paying rent to the government? And I think that's really interesting that the way that you put all that is because once they understand the really you know fundamentals of everything and the the idea of uh, self ownership and property rights and all that, the argument of why do we pay property tax then can easily be made into question of you know why are you paying for a house that you've already paid for? You're paying the government to continue owning this house because they say it's a land tax. But if you refuse to pay that tax, well, they just take your house, even though you've paid for it. Do you still have the right to own that property? So that is, that is, uh, I'm definitely going to read this thing. I mean, I read all three Hunger Games books. If I can do that, I can read 100 pages. I might, I might have to get a thesaurus or a dictionary or something, keep it close by because, you know, bootleg, not good word, but, um, it's not totally fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, one one question. Oh, actually, she beat me to it. So this so this is actually something uh, very early on in this show, um, or this shit series, whatever you want to call it. Someone actually changed my mind live on air about intellectual property. Oh. My opinion was that intellectual property. Uh, should exist that you should be allowed to patent things whether it's an idea or whatever they changed my opinion being that it shouldn't exist for the simple fact that it stifles innovation and it prevents people it prevents the free market from existing so uh, and i'm not trying to change your opinion i just i from someone who is far more intellectually adept and uh, much more uh i'll say uh intellect uh, just just fucking smarter than me. What is your opinion on intellectual property? Sure. Yeah. I even uh, devote a section of the book to talk about intellectual property, both you know, the concept of it and the applications of what it's like to not have intellectual property as norm from the state. So what we really need to do to break this down is, is think about what intellectually pro- intellectual property is when it comes to the government. And what the government does is it says, if you have an idea that you put into a fixed medium, that is you have it into a physical form. Maybe it's a drawing. Maybe you fashioned some pottery thing. Uh, maybe you made a, a movie or you, you put down a music into, I mean, CDs aren't around anymore, but maybe USB or something like that, right? If you you, uh, you do something where you're taking the idea and put it to a fixed form, you get a certain type of protection from the state, which protection means armed government goons will use violent force on your behalf in a certain region for an arbitrary period of time if someone else tries to do the same thing. And what people don't realize is that this type of claim means that you are having a claim to the total independent property of another. And to make a very simple example, I, I talk about this you know, in the book as well, but it, it's just a simple example. If someone were to make a drawing in the United States of a character and then they post it up online and someone else sees that same drawing and they go and they're maybe 
3,000 miles away, you know, someone's in the U.S. and Florida, Florida man's making it. And then some guy in Jakarta in Indonesia's, you know, makes a drawing of that because he sees it online. He does the same exact kind of drawing, but then does his own tweaks to it. That's called derivative work. So this person is copying that person's original drawing. If someone were to be able to use violent force to stop that man in Indonesia from making that copy, they're essentially saying they have a higher right to the claim of the paper and pencils of that guy in Indonesia who's just at his home, drawing with his own pencil paper, and he's making a derivative work. You know, they're saying that that person who, the Florida man who made that original print, has the right to use violent force against the Indonesian man because he is using his own private property to draw something. And that's essentially saying he has the higher property right to the Indonesian man's property. He has a higher property right to the pencil and paper that that other guy has. Because if he can use violent force to stop him from making a drawing that looks like his, you're saying, oh, well, guess what? You may have pencil and paper, but you can't draw with your own pencil and paper. It's your own property. It's on, you know, wholly owned in a way that you want to, even though it's not depriving the original artist of their original drawing or, you know, doing anything else otherwise in terms of violating their body of property. So that's really what it, it comes down to. And Kinsella writes about that too, uh, Stephen Kinsella, and against intellectual property, just noting how you're essentially making a claim that you have a higher right to someone else's physical, totally independent property if you can stop them from fashioning it into something that happens to look like what you did or sound like what you did. So to me, that is where the property rights aspect comes in, the scarcity idea. That is that you are not depriving the original artist or inventor of their physical invention if you're making your own copy with your own independent materials, your own property rights. So when it comes to the concerns past that, then we're dealing with other topics with how do you monetize your ideas, your music, or your technological invention? How do you monetize those things if you can't rely on a monopoly of force, the you know, various governments saying, you know, you get to have this protection for 20 years or 90 years or whatever. So, you know, that's its own big discourse and we can go down as well, but that's kind of the property rights aspect of why intellectual property, just, you know, this idea of having an idea and putting it into a fixed medium, that doesn't give you a property right to then go violate others for using their property. Yeah, I think it is really interesting, like some of the arguments I hear why an intellectual property should exist. Um, so people say, oh, well, you know, why would you invent something if somebody can just steal it and then reuse it. Well, we see that regularly. We see Chinese knockoffs all the time. The reason those Chinese knockoffs exist is for one simple reason, one simple, one reason, one reason alone, is to make them cheaper. Chinese knockoffs are not, you know, let's, for example, I'll take iPhones. Um, there's a lot of YouTube channels out there where you can watch people buy these Chinese knockoffs of iPhones, like the newest one, whatever they think it's going to look like. They'll buy it for like 200 bucks. When the real thing costs what 13 14 bucks whatever it is and it's the performance is less it looks goofy it operates like shit, but it's a knockoff but it violates patent laws for the simple reason that it does claim to be an iphone or whatever 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 or you see people say oh well you know um like they'll use it for monetary gain and they'll try to duplicate the exact same thing well we see that now Tesla actually has a lot of open source patents on some of the equipment in their vehicles, which Ford, Chevrolet, Toyota, and all these other manufacturers are now using in their vehicles because they want to try and make their vehicles the same way. But is that hurting Tesla? No. Tesla is still, what, three years backed up on, on uh, production. They're still struggling to keep up with the demand people have for the vehicle. If you hit the market first with something, people will want to buy it. It's not like people are going to say, oh, well, I can go buy 
uh, instead of buying a Tesla, I'll go buy a Chevy Volt. That's not a thing people say. I've, I've worked in the automotive industry since like 2015. That is not something somebody says. So, yeah, it is, it is really interesting, the, uh, the intellectual property rights. And I've, I've heard a lot of really great arguments on both sides. But as an anarchist, I can't see where people say that the government should have the, the sole arbitration on um, the ability to say what is right and what is wrong, no matter what it is. So it is, uh, I, I will definitely, dude, I'm, like this, like just the last 10 minutes alone is super convinced me to read this book. I'm probably going to read like six times of that. <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, and when it comes to what you're talking about with, you know, knockoffs and things like that, I think that something that's often missed too, you know, in this discourse is when people say, well, why would anybody invent anything if you can't make money? And it's like, there's ways to monetize beyond the invention stage and people invent beyond wanting to make money because ultimately invention is about solving problems and people want to solve problems. In fact, solving problems can make their own lives easier and in the process benefit others just because they're like, hey, you know, this is bothering me and I fixed this thing and guess what? Here's how I did it. YouTube tutorials, there's tons of those with millions of views of people who have come up with solutions for different fun things. I, you know, one of my favorites <laughs> that you could say is, is the, the 3D printing community when it comes to, uh, you know, print uh, and repeat, print, shoot, repeat, you know, um, and, and their stuff, right? People are sharing their knowledge about how to design and fabricate uh, different types of, uh, you know, farm stuff. So to me, it's so abundantly clear that people innovate for a variety of reasons. And the question then is just, okay, well, what are the, the monetary mechanisms that kind of take place when you can't just solely rely on that? And there's, there's tons of ways that that happens, whether it's, you know, research being done through a type of academic and not-for-profit institute where people are finding that because, hey, if you're a rich person and you get cancer, your wife gets cancer, you have some disease, guess what they're going to do? They're going to be funding research for cures for those things, right? If someone has a lot of money, they're gonna be like, oh crap, I got this problem. I need to fund, you know, a solution for this, right? If you have uh, people who are, you know, trying to develop something uh, to, to help themselves out because they have a personal problem, whatever, you know, I see this too. I think about um, with people who are fabricating in, in the makerspace and, and doing, you know, 3D printing stuff. If someone's like working on, you know, prosthetics, there's people who have, you know, for their own interest, design different files to work on prosthetic arms and legs and stuff like that for themselves because they were just like you know i want to see if i can play around and find a better way of of having you know their missing limb be able to be functional and stuff like that right people have these existing natural incentives to want to create innovate and share and then i think the best part about all this is the example from the uh, software space where you have open source, source software which even microsoft has moved to largely because when you have open soft open source software you have the global community of developers who are able to add to and make changes to different programs and offer up suggestions and make these more efficient. And now everybody's helping everybody because everybody has this incentive to be like, hey, I want to make this software the best possible. I want to you know, design the best thing and I want to learn from others and share that knowledge. And the more people share that knowledge, the more they're able to make better products and you know have greater efficiencies and effective things in their life. And I think that um, exists everywhere and in all technologies. I mean, it's not just limited to software. Uh, this exists in China, as you were mentioning, where in their uh, electronics markets, there are people who come up with different ways of like having better antennas and receptors and stuff like that. And they'll copy each other in these kind of like stalls that, you know, are huge lines of booths of different types of electronics providers and, you know, tinkers. And they, you know, they steal, they take from each other, they learn from each other all the time. And it, 
all of them benefit because when people innovate and they learn from others, like, oh, that's awesome. And somebody else innovates and learn from them and so on and so forth. So it's, it's this constant building, um, I guess you could say, kind of atmosphere that turns away from just like, oh, I'm going to sit on this patent or I'm going to sit on this, you know, copyright. Or I'm going to get this trademark or I'm going to lobby to extend the trademark like Disney has done, right, with, with the Mickey Mouse. And instead of just, like, I'm just going to try to sit on this and like, oh, okay, it forces more innovation, right? And instead of being about, I'm going to make money by trying to hold this violent force, it becomes, okay, I have to provide good customer service and good branding and good packaging and things like that. So the monetization switches to actual what I see is the best thing, which is people competing over who can provide the best service instead of who can have the greatest monopoly of the set of assets of patents and copyrights and trademarks. And that's, that's what you want. You want people competing over best service over best quality product and not over, oh, well, I had this idea and guess what? You, nobody else can make it, right? You want everybody competing over who's going to do this the best. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all seen time and time again where where patents have stifled innovation. Um, du uh, so one thing a lot of people don't know is DuPont actually owns a patent to uh, what they call a scratchless paint. They've never hit the market with it. Why? Because DuPont makes fucking paint. Like the, that, that hurts their market share if they create something that puts them out of the market. Uh, Kodak, Eastman Kodak, back in the day, actually had a had a patent for digital cameras. Well, when they created that patent, guess what they were mostly making? Film. That was a, a big share of their, their market share. So these companies are innovating stuff. They're like, oh, this is super cool. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll patent it. And then shove it away. And then, as we now know, Kodak, not so much around anymore. Eastman is, but um, yeah, I, I, I've seen, we've seen time and time again where patents have damaged the free market and actually individual lives more so than uh, than help the free market. And it is, it is really sad for the simple fact that, um, you know, allowing people to compete in that way. I'll, I'll put it this way. Imagine if we had the same kind of regulation on speech as far as like you can't copy the way that someone gives a speech, right? Or like the way that someone uses intellectual uh, arguments to make your own arguments. Do you think people like Spike Cohen could go on a stage and make the same, you know, the same uh, amazing speech that he did without violating patent laws? No, because then he'd have to like build his entire the, the way that he speaks to people around, okay, someone else has done this, so I can't do that. Someone else has done this, I can't do that. So I guess that's it's kind of a weird roundabout way of explaining it, but allowing people to compete freely benefits not just companies, but the individual more so. Uh, I mean, companies will 100% benefit no matter what. Like, there's what, 30 companies that make tires. No, there's not somebody who's like, oh, I can't sell tires. Tires tires are tires some people make cheap stuff some people make expensive stuff there's something out there for everyone um but i did want to kind of pivot into one more thing while i'm rambling on like an idiot um so so uh, this is in uh page 88 it's the about the author segment which i always find is super interesting because it's kind of a what i call a dive into the the madness but um so it starts with he left the schooling oh gosh all right so he left the schooling paradigm to open his own tutoring company after seeing how much children were hurt by the schooling process his experiences working with kids as a lawyer and teacher also led him to help families exit 
compulsory schooling through his page, the honest teacher. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess she's wanting me to talk about the honest teacher. So, sure. Yeah, the honest teacher is is a, a fun page that I created in the wake of uh, just seeing how horrible the compulsory state schooling paradigm was and getting a lot of firsthand experience in it. Uh, both as a substitute teacher, full-time teacher, I taught in a high school, uh, 8A, which is you know one of the largest ones with thousands of students, uh, to a charter school, which is a, a K-8 school. And also, I've been a juvenile defense attorney uh, and uh, owner of tutoring companies, so do tutoring as well. And my dad actually taught uh, school for, um, I guess you could say about 30 years. You know, he, he did that for a career, uh, for one of his careers. And so I got a little experience of that too. So I have a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, firsthand knowledge and direct experience of seeing what it's like to be a teacher in a variety of different schools and environments. Um, and, you know, both on the public side and on the private side, because I went to private school uh, growing up, uh, four different schools. And I just really saw how horrific the compulsory schooling paradigm was for kids. I mean, more than ever. I mean, it was bad before, you know, I was there. But it, I mean, now kids are just completely monitored and controlled. They're on you know digital learning modules where they have to check and everything. They can't skim things. They're, they're constantly being watched by cameras. In some cases going through metal detectors. Uh, the school day takes up most of their time. They have very little physical activity, you know, recesses and gyms are being cut for the sake of STEM and, you know, trying to be more advanced and compete with China. Um, so it's, it's killing kids. Like it's literally killing kids which is you know, really sad. It's, it's evil what's being done because these kids are getting shamed out of their creativity and their self-motivation early, you know, with kindergartners getting standardized testing. And they're being kept so sedentary and they're being pushed to be drugged so often um, because they don't conform to the schooling environment, which is just an arbitrary progression of, you know, people based on basically one year of age and how much they must have gone through by that time based on what the government says, which is complete and utter nonsense as every single person has a different biological progression, maturity level, home life, ability and interest in life. So, you know, trying to standardize a one size fits all is, is literal you know, suicide for these kids. So, uh, and, and the numbers do show the increases of suicides, you know, whenever the school year starts. It, it is very traumatic for young people and a lot of them, you know, feel worthless, whether it's because of the schooling system itself and feeling like a failure, they're behind and or because of bullying from students or teachers or whatever else. Um, so it, it's a very toxic environment and it it really is an environment that rewards. Uh, so, uh, well, yeah, I'd say narcissistic sociopathic behavior or sociopathic behavior, uh, because that's what's required to be the most successful is to be the most compliant, willing to obey, you know, do whatever the teacher says, not cause any trouble by disrupting classes so you don't, you know, lose any awards or privileges. It, you know, if you're going to be toward the top of the class, you really have to be someone who has given up any sense of individual drive or interest and has you know, just given yourself over to obeying and complying with whatever they demand in the schooling environment. Yeah, so... I, I kind of I'll, I'll dive into this a little bit of personal information here is uh, the majority of my education, at least, you know, before college um, was overseas. Uh, I spent, I think it was kindergarten and first grade, uh, maybe second in the United States. And then from that point on, it was Damascus, Syria. It was uh, Trinidad and Tobago and it was uh, Oslo, Norway, 
all of which were private schools through through the State Department, but these are, you know, considered international schools, so you get different cultures, you get different languages. Um, it's not just Spanish or French. You can you can take, you know, Arabic, Farsi, you can take, you know, Norwegian, you can take different languages. And the one thing I noticed about every single school was that standardized testing didn't really exist. Like they had tests, but it wasn't like this test that, you know, every single teacher gave. Each teacher gave a different test based on what they taught. They were like, hey, I just need to know where you're at. And one thing I, I will say this too is that teachers in that environment, I'm not saying it's for any reason other than the simple fact that the environment of the schools themselves were different. They were structured very different in the sense that uh, the, like, the one teacher, like I can think of one teacher right now off the top of my head. I can remember his name, his face, everything. Brian Mars, like he taught, uh, he taught math uh, and also at the international school there. Um, the reason I remember him so very well is he was an older British guy who, who actually gave a shit about me because I sucked at math. Like, as someone who has a computer science degree, math is like 90% of that degree, still suck at math. People will ask me basic math, I suck at it. Just gonna be honest. But this guy took the time to hold me behind class and like help me with stuff. Like he would force me to say, he's like, look, you're gonna stay and learn this stuff. He's like, it's important. He's like, this matters. He's like, all the rest of it, you know, whatever. He's like, but I'm gonna, you know, give you that personal one on one time. And we don't see that in the US. Like your teacher's like, look, they're cattle. We gotta get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. And the teachers that do care, it doesn't matter. They're still forced into that get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. It's it's a it's a far it's a it's a like a corporate uh, cattle ranch is the way I look at it, or like a factory because they want they modeled it after the early 1900s style of you know you move from station to station, bell to bell, you get as much done as, in a day as you can, just push people through and whatever. You don't care really about the performance. You give them a point score and then get them out the door. That's why we. That's why they passed the affirmative action because they were like, "Eh, we can't pass enough people. We'll just push them through, and it doesn't matter whether or not uh, you know people people learn anything." So there is there is this a massive massive problem in the U.S. education system on how we look at education versus how we are educating. It's not the educators that are the problem. It's the system itself that is the fundamental problem. It's how. It, it, and always too, it's how American parents see the system because that's the system they're used to. They see it as a, as a daycare and not, you know, somewhere that their kids should want to go. Because um, honestly, a lot of those same parents are like, yeah, I hate school too. I don't want to go either, but you got to go. I've heard so many people say that shit, and it's it is it is really sad. And and I'm not saying that you know compulsory education is a good thing. But you probably do want to learn how to read, how to write, and do math. STEM classes shouldn't be mandatory. Learning how to do AP Calc shouldn't be mandatory. Learning college-level stuff at a high school level probably shouldn't be mandatory. A lot of Americans grew up in blue-collar families or came from a family that not that long ago were blue-collar. Let's bring back more automotive. Let's bring back more wood shop. Let's bring back more of these things that kids want or may be interested in. Welding is something that's dying off very rapidly in the United States that we're not teaching people. Maybe we should. Not everyone's going to be uh, an engineer or a chemist or a rocket scientist. So we got to understand that. Just because you go to college doesn't mean you're going to have a good degree. 
sorry to say, uh, but lesbian dance theory it will not pay very well when you graduate college. Well, I mean, for me, the uh, the question of schooling and and the whole you know say operation there. It, for me, all of the compulsion, no matter what it is, math, reading, science, English, history, whatever, um, in, an, in a compulsory environment, it's always unethical. So the question of how kids come to learn to read or have you know, basic numeracy and stuff like that, those are all things that can come naturally through curiosity and children learning in their environment with adults who act as facilitators instead of performance judges. And a big part of that problem is that even teachers, you know, who by and large, I would say they think they're going in to help. Like teachers usually are going in because they think they're going to do something good or help. They inherently are part of the abuse cycle because they inherently have to shame, stigmatize and threaten students in order to keep them conformed to the classroom. So, for example, you know, we're giving grades. The F mark is a failing mark or, you know, D mark is, you know, you're almost failing that these grades are meant to stigmatize and sort kids um, into those who are performing the most compliantly and those who are not. And those uh, you know, labels end up causing kids to think that they're worthless or they're behind or they're not good enough and it sticks with them for a very long time. And the teachers who you know are, are enforcing those things in the process of trying to get these grades, because a lot of times the, the passing marks are gonna affect their own evaluations at the end of the year, how they're looked at, they are going to use threats and shame to get conformity, whether that's putting a kid's name on the board or or saying, oh, you better pay attention or you're disrupting the, the other's learning or the classroom. Or they say, oh, you know, would, you're not going to be able to get a good job if you don't focus now. All these types of stigmatizations and threats are really their own creation, um, their own construct forced upon the kids. So the the whole apparatus is itself meant to shame limit and control children into getting them to be obedient so that they stay in school and they you know get the needed grades so that they have the district funding per you know headcount and you know based on the pass rate stuff like that so it, it's i think it's a very dysfunctional environment and it inherently um, leads to many people in the administration and teachers becoming uh, very toxic abusers of kids and they do so because they feel that strain, that pressure to get everybody through, you know, whatever the, the two weeks for the next quiz, whatever the next, next benchmark is, where the next evaluation is. And so it caused them to um, do a lot of things that you would just say are, are quite evil and would be considered wholly unethical in any other relationship, like gaslighting kids about their own interests and saying, oh, you know, that doesn't matter. Just do this now and you'll be successful later. Or, you know, telling kids like, oh, no, you, you can't talk or do something like that while teachers, you know, are secretly uh, on their phones and, you know, they're talking to other teachers and stuff while everybody's heads down doing the warm-up exercise and stuff like that. There's like a, there's a, uh, an apartheid system to the whole thing uh, with, with different standards um, for behavior. And I, I think that sadly what that means is that many kids are, are growing up to either, be, you know, be broken in terms of feeling lots of self-shame and, and feelings of worthlessness and not being good enough, or if they manage to get compliant enough they think that compliance and getting good grades means they're an authority and then now now they can be the ones in control and now they can be a part of the academic elite and the government and the ones who get to make the rules to everybody else right it's like oh, okay almost like uh, i think squid game right people were engaged in the game and they're doing really violent evil things for the ultimate reward but 
at the end of the, the show, right, the main character ends up wanting to go back into the game, right? Because it's like, that's all he has left. And it's that kind of idea of like, oh, okay, you know, the school is really just preparing you to be an academic. So the best, the best, they're going to be the academics or the, the intellectual class. But really, all they're doing is just being obedient and compliant and shaming others who are not obedient and compliant like they were. Um, so it, it creates a, a really terrible outcome, I think, uh, for the general public at large of having the people who are selected by virtue of the social stigmas and the signaling, those being the people who are in positions of authority or leadership, especially in the government, where that's you know heavily looked at, and, and those people being the ones that are touted as model uh, citizens. And really, these are just sociopathic people who hide their, their smiles, their true emotions, their thoughts and feelings. They bury it down just so that they can save face and look good so they get their A's and they look good as a teacher's pet or whatever it is they need to do so that they can be whatever top of the class, valedictorian, salutatorian, or or whatever honors or privileges they, they, you know, they ultimately could earn. Um, so I, I think the entire nature of compulsory schooling is, is extremely destructive to the human spirit. Um, it's extremely destructive to children's uh, natural learning and can be wholly supplanted with parents acting as facilitators instead of performance judges and saying, oh, you better learn this. And oh, if, if you get this bad grade, you're stupid. What's wrong with you? You better get in your room or I'm going to put you in a corner, you know, that kind of stuff, which happens. I mean, I, you know, as someone who's been on all sides of it in the homes as a tutor, um, parent teacher conferences, ESC meetings, substitute teacher, juvenile defense lawyer at the worst where kids are committing crimes. I've seen it all, the whole thing. Um, it, it creates a very sick system of abuse by parents, by teachers, just trying to meet these demands and jump these hoops because they feel like, oh, if my kid doesn't do this, they're going to fail. They're going to be a bum. They're going to be homeless if they don't get you know straight A's or whatever into this top college or whatever. So it's, it's very sick. It's, it's a very sick system. So. Yeah. One thing, I mean, one thing you did touch on, and I think it's kind of the, the key premise is that um, if, if parents treated their kids the way that public education treated their kids, uh, either A, they would be arrested for child abuse, or B, their kids would be taken away from them for child abuse. Um, telling telling one child that they're a loser and a failure and they'll never be anybody, and then telling the other kid that they're they're fantastic and they're wonderful, uh, that is, in a lot of ways, would it, it correctly should be seen as abuse or treating kids differently based on you know performance or whatever. Um, that that's. That's one thing I haven't actually thought of, and I'm really glad you mentioned it because it is it is it is child abuse. But because the state runs it, and they say that you have to be there, it's totally fine. If you've ever noticed, like like uh, schools that have lower performance ratings, uh, and there's no there's no happenstance or coincidence about this. Those are where military recruiters target the most. That's where they'll provide ASVAB testing. That's where they'll set up it in lunchrooms or uh, schools that are poor. That's where they'll set up as well. And so it's not like, oh, you know, they're going to go set up at the, the really nice school that where most of these kids end up, you know, in Ivy League schools because, you know, that there's, there's, a, there's a solid reason behind that. But, yeah, it is, it is an abusive system because they do want to target kids. And actually one of the most disgusting things I've heard recently is this, there's uh, apparently this whispering push for um, – like a European model for ed, uh, for American education, which would be like, I guess like an IQ test or an aptitude test, like early on in high school, which would determine what classes you're allowed to take. And, you know, if you're not smart enough going into high school, like, or your brain's not developed enough, you can't take, you know, AP classes. So you'll just have to stick to like to welding. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. The guy who was welding, you know, 
beams on a skyscraper, I want to be pretty fucking smart. I don't, I don't think that I want him to just like half-ass do a weld and then walk off. Um, so it is an abuse. Oh, God, dude, that is wild. Like the, the, the idea that it is an abusive system because it is anything around government is abusive. And the other thing is too, is like parents that are like, Hey, I want to get my kids out of this and do better. Guess what? A lot of states don't allow that or they, they make it so ridiculously difficult to do so because of the curriculum that they require. They'll send cops to your door with guns and force you to send your kids to school or throw you in prison. And they force your kids into this abusive system, which it's wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's, I mean, that's what the government does in there, you know, it's parallel elsewhere as well. Right. What does the government do when they get businesses to be uh, a part of their enforcement regime for taxes, right? Tax withholding the government, that is the people running it specifically, um, who are you know managing the specific policies. They know that it's not possible to meaningfully, with the state apparatus and the, the personnel, enforce all these different types of laws and taxation things. So what do they do? They get other people to become their snitches. They get other people to do the work for them. And the same thing that happens with businesses helping to basically be the enforcement arm for the IRS and the government, right? Instead of what should, you know, if people actually had to wait to pay tax at the end of the year, they'd be like, oh, okay, crap. You know, when the businesses are withholding it for them and doing that stuff, then they miss it and they, you know, think, they'll think about it. But in the schools, in the same way, the, you know, teachers are becoming the enforcement arm of the state and the parents do too. So the stress and the pressure to be like, oh, my kid, you know, they have to be good. They have to, they have to perform. And if they're not, if they're not, their grades aren't up, they're a bad student. I got to, you know, threaten them or hit them or shame them or, you know, or tell them they're going to be, you know, crap or worthless if they don't, you know, pick up those grades. So it's it's very horrific what that system does to the psychologies of both those who are implementing the curriculum and parents who kowtow to you know what they're mandating in the school and become enforcement arms for the state essentially and pushing their kids to be indoctrinated. Of course, many of them unwittingly don't really think on this level, but they're pushing their kids to be indoctrinated by the schooling system and to become subservient and compliant and pliable and molded into whatever it is that those in the state would like them to be if they, you know, fully complied with every single thing they taught and every single kind of mantra they gave them from the Pledge of Allegiance onward throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, if, if public education was such a fantastic thing, why do they pay teachers to keep students there? I mean, it looks more like a prison than it does an educational facility, right? I mean, like how many times do you see colleges forcing kids to stay in classes? Like, your professor, if you get up and walk out, they're like, sucks to be you i guess you paid money to be here but public education they're like no you have to stay here um for going back to disney how many how many guards do you think disney keeps on payroll that keep people there versus keep people out if if public education was such a fantastic and wonderful thing and we were spending all this money because it worked why are they forcing kids to stay in these schools and they're it's because the system doesn't work and they just aren't willing to admit that it works because back to kind of what I said earlier is that parents just would much rather send their kids to publicly funded daycare than to deal with them themselves. But, um, so I did want to circle back to one thing. Where the fuck do you get off talking about pineapple on pizza? (laughs) I am just a huge fan. You know, you gotta try now that you're in Florida, five star pizza. I don't know if you've ever had it. it five-star pizza? 
Yeah, five star pizza. I don't know. It's just a legendary college pizza. It's not. It's not like high quality, like New York crisscross. I don't know if you into that. You know, fold over pizza. It's just one of these like junk food pizzas that you just hit it and it's just like bliss. But if you put some pineapple on that, you're basically in heaven. So I don't know if you ever done that, but maybe one day we'll we'll, we'll share a slice and you can try with or without pineapple, and then you see what you know what happens after that. Five star pizza. Is it like greasy and like disgusting looking? And it like just looking at it makes your like blood pressure go up. It's. I mean, not too too greasy. It's not. It's not. It's not like super low quality pizza. It's like you know. It's like the king of of three a.m. pizza. You can think of it like that. <laughs> like like you've been drinking a little too much. You're like, I really want pizza. Yeah, that's. It's that. Yeah, you're you're knee deep. You know, in some fireball, and you're ready to you know take the edge off. That's that kind of pizza. All right. I'm going to have to try it then. That <laughs> sounds like – like I don't like New York style where it's like all neat and it looks it looks clean. That, that's not pizza to me. That's I want something that like – I look at that I'm like, I'm going to have to go to the gym for a while to work this off. Yeah. I mean it, it, it's the kind of pizza you'd have after you spent a night, you know, doing swinker swim, uh, uh, sinker swims at the, uh, the country club, right? You're doing a bunch of line dancing. You got that, you know, cheap vodka, you know, bottom shelf. You've hit like – you know, 10 glasses of that and you're sweating, you know, your, your shirt <laughs> unbuttoned, right? You got your boots on, you're getting your truck and that's, and then you go get some pizza. It's five star. Now you're speaking my language, line dancing, <laughs> boots. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm down now. I, he's like, you, you should live with that. Like trucks, boots and line dancing. Uh, you just sold me on five, uh, was it five star pizza? Yeah. What would you call it? Five star pizza. I, I mean, why not? You should just open up a bar like that. Just call it truck boots. And uh, line dancing. That's basically the next title of a, like a country club. <laughs> Boots and line dancing. Yeah. Always have a five-star pizza and really shitty vodka. They did have – there was this one um, country club that sometimes I'd go to for, for fun. They actually did that, that where at the end of the night, after their sink or swim stuff, they would bring in the pizza. So they'd, like, have, you know, boxes and boxes of pizza, and everybody was just, you know, sitting out in the, in the parking lot trying to sober up a bit. <laughs> It worked. It was good stuff. It was a good time. That could be dangerous. So if you're on that teetering point, you've been drinking a little too much, you start cramming pizza. That's that's a gamble. It is. It is a gamble, but it's a worthy gamble. Mm-hmm. It is. Well, Jack, I really appreciate this. This has been super informative for me. Uh, it's also been super entertaining. Um, apparently, I now have uh, uh, a new bedtime story. I'm trying to find it where she posted this. She's, I guess, going to put me in um, like a onesie and read me a story. Yeah, she said, there we go. It'll be the, the bedtime story for a few nights. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm definitely going to have to start reading this tonight. Um, but I would be, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll do this. Uh, anything you got coming up, anything you want to talk about, anything you want to plug, anything yeah, there's not too much uh, directly going on. We don't have any uh, specific events or campaigns active at the moment. Uh, we you know take a little break because we're doing some you know going to other people's events and stuff like that. But later this year, uh, we'll probably throw up the campaign for the Florida Man Museum. Who knows? You might even be in it. You might even get casted. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And uh, you know we might throw an event. We're, we've been teetering on maybe having an event at some point for Floridians for Florida Mans. 
Uh, we'll see if that goes through. But in the meantime, just been, you know, plugging away at the voluntarist comic campaign, working on that. Might do some, you know, more songs and stuff like that here or there. But yeah, nothing, nothing too active. So if anybody uh, wants to keep up with what I'm doing, you know, Vol Comic, V is in victory, volcomic.com. That's my comic website. You connect to a bunch of my social media there or the philosopher with a O instead of the I. So P H O L O, philosopher, the philosopher.com. That's my wife's site. We connect with a lot of different projects and things we do there too. So yeah, fun stuff, fun times. Yeah, I'll definitely have to try some some five. I'll have to do a video of me just eating five star pizza and drinking bottom shelf vodka to see if I can get in this video. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the Florida Man Off contest sounds amazing. I don't want to be in it. I just want to watch this. This sounds dangerous and exciting and uh, something I would really want to watch. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's good. the music video is gonna be a lot of fun. So um, yeah, we'll we'll see. We're gonna have a big open casting. Uh, when that comes it's going to have a lot of people for what i'm envisioning for it so who knows we'll probably see some fun liberty faces so tom said he'd be in it so hopefully he he shows up we'll say uh tom, who? tom woods yeah oh tom Woods. okay yeah i'm gonna try to get spike if i can too he'll probably come out <laughs> oh yeah that's his that's his, that's his speed goofy yeah. is definitely his speed it's, it's well past time that you know he's been a big music video so there you go yeah Tease it as the the, the breakout for the the, the mixtape. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? I might get him on a mixtape too. We'll see. There you go. <laughs> well, Jack, I appreciate you coming out tonight, man. It was uh, fantastic. Um, I really do appreciate you coming out, and uh, I would be breaking tradition if I didn't do this and say that you're not a real libertarian. Uh, none of it exists, and it's all made up. I appreciate. It. Thanks, like thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, I appreciate you. Yo, good night, man. You too. Take care. All right, everyone. Good night, good liberty, and uh, that's all I got. Peace.